Welcome to the Alt Swift X Game of Thrones Abridged podcast. Uh, this is episode 95, and today we're talking about Bran 3, the 22nd chapter in the second book of A Song of Ice and Fire. And this is, um, this is kind of a, kind of a good one, kind of a positive, happy chapter as far as A Song of Ice and Fire is concerned. This is a moment of the Northmen and the Starks, those who remain, coming together, sharing in their food, having some frivolity, having some good times before the darkness and war and loss that is to come. Uh, it's, uh, it's a little, little, little moment, a little, little pocket of joy before everything turns to shit. Um, there's also a lot of food in this one, so prepare for some food descriptions, prepare for some greasy chins, uh, and prepare for politics, magic, shadowing, Hodor, all the good stuff. So let's begin. So as you recall, in the last Bran chapter, Bran was getting ready at Winterfell for the Harvest Feast. And this is where all these lords and northmen come to Winterfell to, to, to reaffirm their loyalty to the Starks. And for the Starks to reaffirm their, their responsibility to their lords. Um, it's a reciprocal relationship that, that is reaffirmed by this sharing of, of food and warmth and joy. Um, but of course, since it's Game of Thrones, it's also a moment for political jostling and machinations and much foreshadowing for what's to come. Thanks for the super chat, Daniel Kim. So the first sentence is dancer. That, that, that's a horse, not an actual dancer. Dancer isn't dancing, uh, as far as I know. But a four-legged animal dancing is a lot more impressive than a two-legged animal dancing, I would say. Um, Dance of the horse is draped in bardings of snowy white wool, emblazoned with the grey direwolf of House Stark. And riding the horse is Bran Stark, wearing grey breeches and a white doublet, his sleeves and collar trimmed with vair. So Bran is looking like like spicy fresh. He's looking fly in his white velvet and his grey, uh, which is something you don't really see in the TV show. In the TV show, pretty much everybody just wears like dark leather all the time, um, which, you know, I think was done to try and give everything a tone of sort of realism and groundedness, which I sort of understand. But like there is a function to the bright clothes um, because they communicate class and they communicate allegiance and they communicate wealth and they communicate prestige. Um, so there's a lot of important things going on with, with the clothing, I think. And like even the fucking horse, like this horse has got this snowy white wool garb. This horse is better dressed than most of the actual lords are in the Game of Thrones show, which is ridiculous. Um, it's also it's also an indoor horse. Like like Bran is riding this horse up through the Great Hall of Winterfell, which is a real power play. Like, like that's like driving your Maserati into Buckingham Palace and just skirt skirt on the Queen and just going like, hey. Look at my wealth. It's like a hip-hop video. Like, lords in Game of Thrones are like the rappers flaunting their wealth in, in hip-hop music videos. But by, by skirt-skirting in, in his dancer with all the white wool, wool bardings, Bran is saying, Hey, look, I'm the Stark. I'm large and in charge. I might not have legs, but I do have the, the power and the prestige and the horse of Winterfell. So, you know, know where you stand. Um... A horse indoors is a risky move. Like in the in the remember in the TV show it, when in season two episode nine when Tywin Lannister won the Battle of Blackwater for the Lannisters, and he he walks in with his horse into the Red Keep right in front of the Iron Throne, and Tywin he just rolls in. Um, and his horse takes a dump on the floor. Like it's hilarious if you watch that scene. Like at the end of the. Oh, oh no! It's in it's season two, episode ten. I think it's it's like the victory thing before King Joffrey, um, and Tywin walks in with his horse as a show of power and stuff, and he just takes it, and his horse just shits on the floor, which 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 sort of shows you what kind of a man Tywin is. He 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 does not give a shit, and the way he communicates that is to give a literal shit. Um, what are we talking about? But but so so the point is that. The point is skirt, skirt. But but the horse indoors reminds me of there's this story, um, something that happened to my grand, great great grand aunt, um, was this issue with the cow. Like as a prank, 
uh, her nieces decided that that just to rile up old old Aunt Jemima, they they would they would put a cow in her upstairs bedroom, like just as like a just a prank, bro. Um, so they so they led the cow up by like holding like a carrot in front of its head. And old old Betsy the cow, like they actually got the cow. Like the bedroom was on the third floor, so so they 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 led the cow all the way up the spiral staircase to the to Aunt Jemima's bedroom, um, and she cacked a dax when she found that Betsy was was in a in a marriage bed. Um, but the thing about cows is that they can go upstairs, but cows are physically incapable of going downstairs because of like how their legs bend. Um, so in the end, they had to get a they had to get a fucking like crane to like pull the roof off um, Jemima's house in order to to airlift the cow out, or at least that was the plan. The the, the what they ended up doing because they couldn't afford the crane was was to instead um, to, to sadly uh, butcher Betsy and turn her into uh, delicious delicious uh, ribs um, instead. So uh, it was a it was a big feast that the that the Shrift clan had that night, uh, much like the, the 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 feast that we're about to witness in this chapter. Anyway, so Bran is rolling up in his horse and he's showing off the stark prestige and power. Um, and Dancer goes up the stairs into the Great Hall, and all these people, these Northmen, are in the Great Hall, and they're shouting, Stark, Stark, Winterfell, Winterfell. So it's all about asserting and affirming that loyalty, that, that northernness, which, which, of course, is really important. It's really important that in here in Book 2 that they, like, explain, that they, that they affirm and, and show us what, like, northern loyalty means. Uh, because, of course, way back, way, way forwards in, in Book 5 in A Dance with Dragons, when you when you see, like, Big Bucket Wool, like, saying, yeah, let's, like, give our lives to, like, beat the Boltons and bring a bring a Stark back into Winterfell and get Ned's little girl Arya back. And, you know, when, when we hear that the North remembers um, and when we, uh, all, all, all these plots going on to, like, bring back and, and all, like, like, people are remembering these moments, this prosperity and this power and this loyalty that was invested in House Stark, that, that those seeds that are being planted here is what we see reaped later on. And you don't see any of this shit with the Lannisters, right? Like, you never see, like, all these Lannister Westermen, like, gathering in some dope-ass feast that, like, Tywin throws for them all, saying, like, hey, let, let's, let's affirm Lannister pride because we're all in this together, guys. You don't see that. And that's why, after Tywin's death, you don't see any fucking Westermen mourning him, you know? So, all the Starks, all the Northmen are coming, and, and, and I mean, like, in Winterfell, they've got the Wintertown, right? So, so, so like, and and the Wintertown is this place where when when winter comes and times are tough, the common folk and the peasantry are invited to all come together and to congregate in the Wintertown as a place to um, huddle together for warmth and to, and to benefit from the protection of the Starks. Um, and, and that shows the responsibility that the Starks uphold to the common people. Um, and that's not something that we see the Lannisters do, do we? There's no, like, casterly rock town where, where peasants are invited to seek refuge in tough times. And I think partly that's, like, a necessity of the North, right? Like, the North experiences the harshness of winter more than anyone else. And because of that harshness, they are forced to look after each other. You know, sometimes it's the people who, who are the most... Uh, who are suffering and who have the least are the people who show the most altruism and community bonds and working together because sometimes you have to work together to survive. If you have nothing and you have to rely on each other to survive, that's when people are closest together sometimes. Um, thanks for the super chat from Alex Alex Pitev who says, would you make an OnlyFans called Alt Sizzle X full of greasy chins and tangents? Uh, yeah, but I think it would probably be called Alt Swift XXX would be the appropriate name for an Alt Swift OnlyFans. Um, and yes, chins will be greasy. I think that's a good idea. It could be like a ASMR style thing, I think. Uh, get that greasy chin right close to the mic and describe some, uh, describe some fucking honey and cloves and savory duck and peppered boar in some sultry tones. I think that would, ooh, that would be a good OnlyFans. All right, so Bran's rolling on up, skirt, skirt, and they're talking about, like, the legacy of House Stark and how the Starks have gone back for 8,000 years, his father and his grandfather, and it makes Bran swell with pride, and he knows that he's a part of this legacy. Um, 
which is in, which is interesting from like Brian's point of view. Like, there's a, there's a few moments in this chapter, like like this this chapter is sort of a moment of relative stillness where where Bran and the Starks are sort of looking forward and looking back. Like it's sort of reflecting on like the the history and the past of the Starks and it's sort of looking forward to their future. Um which I think is fitting for Bran as a character because Bran is um Bran of course as a green seer is someone who sees through time and space. In in, in A Dance with Dragons, Bran has these visions of the past. Um, and so I think it's interesting that he's reflecting on the ancient past here. That's very much Bran's role. Bran can't can't go out and fight or, or go out and do politics necessarily, but he's one who can see and reflect and think and dream as Bloodraven teaches him. So, um, so Bran is embodying the North and embodying Winterfell and embodying the Starks. Uh, and he sits down next to Sir Roderick, um, and he sits down next to Beth Cassell, uh, who, if you recall, when Winterfell gets attacked by the Boltons, uh, when Theon holds Winterfell, Theon threatens to hang Beth Cassell, and Beth becomes a really unfortunate uh, pawn and a victim of, of Theon's uh, machinations. Um, and I believe she's currently a prisoner at the Dreadfort. Beth Cassell gets taken by Ramsay along with many other of the people of Winterfell, and gods only know... Um, how she's doing these days in the Dreadfort. So, Beth, Beth, like, like there are, like, you know, I mean, these characters, some of these, like, tertiary, quaternary, um, minor, minor characters, like, they're not that important, but, but, but they are, they remind us of, like, the cost and, like, the, the human cost of some of the, um, of some of the broader wars and conflicts that happen in this story. Like, that's one of the things that the show losers, I think. Like, the show only has, like, you know, a couple of dozen main characters, um, but it's easier to forget, like, the cost to all the other minor players and to the common people. It's not enough to see some extras suffering. The fact that we know their names, we know these relationships, and then books later, we're like, oh, God, Beth Cassell, that poor girl, you know, this happened to her. I think that's a powerful way to make us feel the impact of the politics, is to have those tiny little human moments, I think, are important. So, So we're reminded of Beth Cassell here. Uh, and Rickon is also here with his mop of shaggy auburn hair. Um, and Rickon's hair is all long because he's refused to let anyone cut it since their mother, Catelyn, had gone. And the last person who tried to cut Rickon's hair got bitten for their efforts. So that reminds us of sort of the wildness and the angriness and the, and the savageness of Rickon. And I mean, also, like, the hair thing is disturbingly reminiscent of King Aerys, the Mad King, right? Because, like, after King Aerys was traumatized by the, by his abduction, by, uh, by, by, well, at Duskendale, um, he went off a cliff psychologically, uh, with his sanity when that happened. And after Duskendale, Aerys refused to have his hair cut. So, like, Rickon is responding in the same way to a trauma. He's also refusing to have his hair cut, and he's also lashing out at people, which is disturbing. Um, I think it'd be really interesting if Rickon, like, when we meet Rickon on Skagos, uh, through Davos, presumably, in the Winds of Winter, um, you know, how sympathetic will Rickon be? Like, Rickon's only, like, four years old or something, um, but, but, but that savageness and that wildness may, might make him more of a problem than a, uh, asset, you know? Um, there's an interesting thing recently where... Where the where the showrunners of the Game of Thrones show were talking about Rickon, and they were saying that originally in season one they were talking about maybe just cutting Rickon from Game of Thrones entirely. Uh, yeah, here's the quote. So George Martin, I, I believe, recently said that that the Game of Thrones showrunners had the idea of eliminating Rickon. Uh, and quote George said, "I had important plans for him, so they kept him." So, you know, some people have talked about Rickon as a Shaggy Dog story, uh, because Rickon's direwolf is named Shaggy Dog, and a Shaggy Dog story is a term uh, to describe a story that goes nowhere. It's uh, A Shaggy Dog story is something that just sort of rambles on and, and, and never sort of ends and, and has no... Um, has no payoff. So some people have said that, well, maybe Rickon will be a Shaggy Dog story. Maybe the whole search for him on Scargos and all of that will add up to nothing. But George Martin said he had important plans. So that suggests to me that, that Rickon has some kind of 
fate. So I'll be interested to know what that is. I mean, I got a bad feeling that maybe season six uh, was right and that maybe Rickon's role really is to be killed by Ramsay at Winterfell in order to turn Jon against him. Like, one school of thought is that Ramsay will be defeated and killed by Stannis Baratheon and he will take Winterfell. Um, but, you know, that pink letter has got to be for a reason, right? Like, making Jon hate Ramsay and want to ride south. I don't know. It's um, hard to predict. But anyway, so we're at the feast uh, and Roderick is up there and Bran has to publicly speak for Winterfell, and he, and he thanks the gods, old and new, for Rob's victories. Interesting that he mentions the new gods as well as the old gods. Uh, and, he sa- and, he, and he talks about the bounty of the harvest. May there be a hundred more victories, and he raises his father's silver goblet. And everyone says, a hundred more, and they all clash their horns together and all the food comes out. Um, phrasing. Um... And it's a moment of ceremony and, and, and ritual, which I think is important, and which is especially relevant for, like, a harvest feast, right? Like, there are very ancient traditions around around food and the changing of the seasons and leaders um, and the idea of, like, a, a ruler or a king being personally responsible for the harvest. And if there's a bad harvest, the, it's the leader's fault and the leader's relationship with God is at fault. There's all sorts of... Um, have you guys seen the movie Midsummer? That's a good movie. You should watch that because it's all about seasons and sacrifice and um, interesting themes like that. So then uh, we roll out the food. It's time for food. Uh, Br- Bran starts drinking um, some of the wine, and it's like a watered down wine because he's a little tacker. But um, uh, but it's it's strong enough that by the time Bran sets down the goblet, his head was swimming. So so Bran is Bran is is white girl wasted. Um, at eight years old. Uh, and Roderick says, you did a good job, good speech, well done, Lord Ed would be proud of you. So, like, we, we keep mentioning Ned Stark, because Ned Stark is so important um, throughout the entire series. His ghost and his legacy is always brought up, because Ned embodies everything that was good and respected and loved about House Stark. And even though Ned Stark failed, even though Ned Stark died, his values... And, and, and what he represented in terms of honorable, just, reciprocal rule, all of that lasts, and that's what the North remembers, and that's why the North continues to fight for the Starks three books later. So all the food comes out. There are... Are you ready, you ready for, the, for, the, for the ASMR food description? <clears throat> there were great joints of oryx roasted with leeks, Venison pies, chunky with carrots, bacon and mushrooms, mutton chops sourced in honey and cloves, savoury duck, peppered boar, goose, skewers of pigeon and capon, beef and... All right, we're going to stop. But there's a whole fuckload of food. And some of it comes from Wyman Manderley from White Harbour. He, he, brings, he, he brings a whole bunch of uh, seafood, casks of fish packed in salt and seaweed, whitefish and winkles, crabs and mussels, crabs, clams and cockles, like in Aya in Bravos, clams, herrings, cod, salmon, lobster and lampreys. He brings all this, all this food that you can only get at White Harbour because it's like this, it's, you know, it's a harbour. Um... Which I think is important, because Wyman Manderley has great political ambitions. Like, he's fucking scheming to, like, marry Barbara Dawson and get the Hornwood lands, and he's, later on, he's trying to get Rick on to, like, increase his station. Like, Wyman has, he has, I mean, if if folks had southern ambitions in the past, Wyman has northern ambitions, I would say. And I think part of that, like, part of this, like, flaunting of wealth and prestige, it's not just the Starks doing that, it's Wyman Manderley. By bringing all this food and by giving it and gifting it to all the North, Wyman is showing off his power and asserting his influence, I think. Um, So there's all this food. Um, and this is, like, part of, like, the contract between, like, the lords, um, and their vassals, right? Like, by providing food, by providing the harvest, by showing that prosperity is the result of their rule, the Starks are asserting that this is what you get in return for your service and your loyalty. So, um, the musicians start playing, um, and... And everyone's having a great time. There's a tide of talk and laughter and cup and plate and and they're singing great songs and, and everyone's having a great time. Um, and, and to me, like, I, I, I think this might evoke 
some of George Martin's feelings about the old uh, sci-fi conventions that that he went to in some of his formative years. Like in a lot of George Martin's not a blog posts, he's always talking about, ah, oh, these great conventions in the 80s when everyone was having a great time and everyone was so hot and young and loving it and rocking it and, you know, all these all these old mates and all, all, all the community vibe and all the awards and all the parties and like George Martin's always talking um, with these rose tinted eyes about the glories of these halcyon days at, at, at sci-fi conventions in the 80s. And, and and I always sort of feel that shining through in George Martin's descriptions of feasts, uh, especially the feast at Harren Hall, um, the one before Robert's Rebellion, uh, where like Ashara was dancing with Ned and Brandon and Barristan and um, and Ares came and freaked everyone out. Like like that tourney is like this nostalgic, bygone, wondrous time. I, I think is evoked by by these feasts. Um, in A Song of Ice and Fire. So everyone's having a great time, um, and the Freys rock up, um, the, uh, Little Walder and Big Walder, because, of course, the, the the North has ostensibly made an alliance with the Freys on the Riverlands, um, and, and the plan is for Rob to marry one of the Freys, and that doesn't work out, and the plan is for Arya to marry one of the Freys, and Bran says that, oh, well, Arya will never marry a Frey, she won't want to do it, and of course, well, Bran's, Bran's right, he never, um, he never did, uh, she never did marry a Frey, and she, she, she does meet the Frey in Harrenhal in this book, but she never marries him. So, uh, as part of the ritual and, 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 the, and the formalities of this feast, uh, each dish is brought to Bran first so that he can take the Lord's portion, the best part of the food. Um, you know, he can take the top Pringle, because that's always... The, and he can take, like, the end of the brownies where there's the sort of crust on the cake, and he can take, the, you know, the, the slice of cake with the most whipped cream, you know. He can get the best portion of every meal. Um, and as a gesture of friendship and favour, he can send uh, some of the choice parts of the food to one of the lords on the dais. So he gives salmon down to Lady Hornwood, and boar to the Umbers, and gooseberries to Clay Kerwin. So, so it's a, this very like ritualistic, formalized process of showing favor, showing friendship, showing loyalty. Food is politics in George R. R. Martin's works. Um, so that's why like the whole cliche of the food descriptions is such a thing. It's a way of affirming loyalties and alliances. Um, and he doesn't just give it to lords; he also gives it to he gives sweets to Hodor and to Old Nan as well for no reason but he loved them. Which is so lovable and and warm and fantastic from Bran. He's su- he's such a likable, lovely, innocent character, um, which just makes it all the more tragic that he becomes so dehumanized and creepy and weird um, in the later book and indeed in Game of Thrones season eight, um, especially in the show when Bran becomes this like dehumanized, cold non-person. As Mira says, uh, "You died in that cave." Um, and it seems like it's going in a similar direction in the books as well. Like the more Bran is steeped in, in magic and destiny and higher things, the less connected he is to human beings on the ground. When you become like a god, humans are just like ants. And so, you know, I don't think this new magical Bran in the later story will be as connected to, you know, old Nan and, and Hodor, sadly. Um, really tragic. Um... And, and yeah, in so many ways, like all the good things that happen in this chapter are just sort of like, you, you, you know what's coming, you know? And, and that's especially true of the Red Wedding. Like this is like a happy, great, wonderful Northern feast um, where everyone's having a great time. And it sort of acts as this sort of opposing axis reflection inversion of the Red Wedding in the next book, uh, which is meant to be this celebratory, warm, wonderful feast, but it ends in disaster and blood and death for the Starks. And so these are sort of these two opposing in- inverse feasts uh, in either book, I think. Um, so all this food's going around, um, and, and yeah, the Umbers and, 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 and the Kerwins and all these people who are, who are so loyal to the Starks, they're getting the favor of the Starks in this feast. Um, and, and Bran also, Bran, on, on Sir Roderick's, uh, suggestion, Bran also decides he, he'd better send some special food to the Walders. So he sends Walder some boiled beets and Big Walder some buttered turnips. 
Um, so <laughs> they get they get favor, but not the uh, not the best kind. So there's Winterfell men mixing with small folk from the Winter Town, friends from the nearer holdfasts, escorts of their lordly guests. So this sounds like a very inclusive feast where lots of different people are brought together and the north seems like a relatively egalitarian friendly communal sort of a sort of a vibe compared to say like you know the lannisters and everyone else um the north is a place where you know people have to work together in order to survive when things get cold and dark it seems uh and so everyone's having a good time but bran watches them from a distance as if he still sat in the window of his bedchamber, looking down on the yard below, seeing everything, yet part of nothing. So that's like a like a tragic, um, you know, evocation of what I was just saying about Bran being dehumanized and separate and disconnected by his magical powers. As Pete says in the live chat, it's Dr. Manhattan syndrome. Dr. Bran Hatton, right? Uh, the more magic he gets, the more disconnected he is. And it also, like, it's, it's also almost breaking the fourth wall because, like, an author is the same thing, right? Like, someone who's writing a story is above it but is not part of it. Um, and so I think there's almost, you can read a certain amount of uh, melancholy into George Martin's writing when he's describing these nostalgic halcyon parties and feasts that, of which he is no longer a part, at least insofar as he's now an author in the present rather than a feaster in the past. So Osher is serving and pouring ale around the feast, which is kind of remarkable, the fact that, you know, she's a wildling, though I suppose most people here don't know that. Um, Micken and, and Leobald Tallheart are grabbing at the serving women. Um, Osher breaks a flagon on Leobald Tallheart's head. Uh, Farlan makes his red bitch beg for bones. Uh, phrasing. Uh, an old nan is picking at the crust of a pie with wrinkled fingers. Lord Wyman attacks a steaming plate of lampreys as if they were an enemy host. Now, I tell you, if Roos, if Roos Bolton was an eel, uh, the Siege of Winterfell would already be over. I tell you that. Um, and poor one Lady Hornwood sits behind, sits next to Roderick her face a stony mask as she picks listlessly at her food. So if you recall, Hornwood's, uh, Hornwood's husband has died, and she's now in a politically precarious position where a lot of men want to move in on her territory and take her land. And specifically, Ramsay Bolton has been like amassing men um, near the border of her lands. And, and Hornwood said last brand chapter, hey, I'm in, I, I'm in danger. What's that Ralph Wiggum meme? I'm in danger. Like, that's... Hornwood is feeling very threatened right now. And and Bran was like, hey, we should help out Lady Hornwood. We should give her some soldiers to defend herself. But Roderick's like, ah, no, you know, we can't send soldiers to everything and we're not going to do it. And as a result, Hornwood gets killed. Ramsay, in, in a few Bran chapters, will roll in, forcibly marry Hornwood, starve her till she eats her own fingers. So, so, so like, Lady Hornwood is almost like this, this, this ghost, this foreboding ghost of, like, future death who is ignored. She's like this pale horse. She's like this phantom, like this this shadow of the future, warning of the evil to come. Like she's she's the elephant in the room. She's the ghost at the feast. She's she's the oncoming looming doom that everyone should fucking do something about, but no one does. So like even in these moments of joy and feasting and prosperity, George Martin always has these notes of foreboding and darkness and and, and worry. There's the bitter and the sweet. Um. So, uh, Brian mentions who, that he that he kind of likes Wyman Manderley, which is interesting. I wonder if that relationship might be significant later. Um, and so Bran is, you know, he's sort of enjoying watching the party, but he doesn't quite feel like he's part of it, and it's too hot, and everyone's too drunk here, and he thinks, oh, it'd be nice in the godswood. In the godswood, steam is rising off the hot pools, the weirwood leaves are rustling, the smells are richer here, soon the moon will rise and my brother will sing. So for a moment, Bran starts slipping into a wolf dream. He, he starts warging into summer without even thinking about it. So that magical connection between Bran and, and, and the direwolves is, is deepening. Um, so, uh, but then he sort of snaps out of it when Roderick speaks to him. Um, and Roderick is being really nice to Bran, saying, you've done really well, Bran, you know, with all the politicking. You'll be a great lord one day. 
Um, and it's so nice how Roderick is sort of stepping in as like almost like a father figure for Bran after Ned's death, which makes it all the more tragic when Roderick is so brutally killed by, by Theon later in this book. And, and Bran is feeling like, oh, being a lord, I don't really want to be a lord, I want to be a knight, but, but Bran won't be a knight, sadly. Um, though he might be a lord of the Seven Kingdoms if he goes the way of the TV show. So, he remembers the... He remembers the feast when King Robert came to Winterfell, um, when Benjen was here, and all of Bran's siblings were here, and Tommen and Marcella and Rob and Arya and Sansa were all here, and and now all those people are gone, as if some cruel god had reached down and swept them all away. The girls to captivity, John to the wall, Rob and Catelyn to war, King Robert and father to their graves, and perhaps Uncle Benjen as well. So there's a deep sadness, like, even amongst the frivolity and the and the partying that, you know, there are people who, who, who can't be here because of all the terrible things that are going on politically. Um, and I think it's funny that, you know, Bran blames some cruel god. Look, the god's got a name. It's George. <laughs> The name of the name of of the of the god is George, and uh, you know, speak for yourself, George. Take some responsibility for the suffering that you're inflicting on these characters. Um, and so he looks at all these new faces who are replacing some of the guards who have left. Jory is now dead, and 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 um, all these all these new guards are here. And he sort of likes these people well enough, but but they're not the people he knows and loves. So like, even though this is home, like home doesn't feel like home always when like the people you love aren't there right like what is home it is it is the place where the people who you love are um and so bran is feeling disconnected in more ways than one so he's wondering yeah he's wondering who who will be missing next year and the year after so again there's like a sense of the future and a sense of time when bran is is disconnected from the present he becomes more connected to the past and to the future um so there's suddenly there's a gust of cold air that makes the torches flame brighter for an instant, and two new guests walk into the feast. It's Mira Reed and Jojen Reed. Knock knock. It's destiny coming. The the Reeds are coming to inject some magic into the arm of this story and to whisk Bran away from the present political goings on and to take him on north to his destiny with Blood Raven. Uh, and, and, and it's significant that the gust of cold air makes the torches flame brighter. That sounds an awful lot like ice and fire, cold air and flame, right? And it's interesting that the ice and fire, they're not cancelling each other out. The the cold makes the torches flame brighter. And one of Jojen's lines is about how love and hate can make. Love and hate can mate, and ice can burn. And, like, Jojen and Mira have this sort of philosophy of, like, the interconnectedness and the balance and the yin-yang of ice and fire, which is sort of unique to them. And and in this chapter, later on, uh, Jojen and Mira swear by ice and fire, which is one of the very rare uses of the of the Ice and Fire title in the books itself. So I think that's not a coincidence. So the torches flame brighter as a result of the cold air. Um, so they roll in, and uh, Bran hears the Walders muttering, frog eaters, mud men, they're thieves and cravens, they have green teeth. Um, so there's this there's this fray uh, uh, hatred of, of the mud men, um, but but Bran has a has a more open mind. So so the reeds are welcomed into the feast, and Maester Lewin says, "Hey, you gotta you gotta be nice to these guys. These guys are these guys are important, uh, because Howland Reed was a great friend to your father." Um, and there's a bunch of mentions of Howland Reed like throughout the series, despite our not having met him the entire time. Where like he's been name dropped so many times, but 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 he still hasn't rocked up. Like, ooh, my father knew the worth of Howland Reed. Rob Stark says, "What is the goddamn worth of Howland Reed, huh?" I I, I th- there are some things that are like foreshadowed heavily in the early books, but which sort of drop off in some of the later books. I think because you know when Bra- when George Martin was writing the early books, he was planning for a trilogy, not an interminable seven-plus book series. Um, and so when he was mentioning Howland so much in books one and two, he was probably planning on, you know, resolving and introducing Howland in, in, very soon. Um, 
but alas, Howland has not arrived yet. But I'm sure he's up to something. He'll he'll be in Greywater Watch with Mage Mormont uh, and Galbert Glover, like scheming about Rob Stark's will to make John King of Winterfell with his knowledge of R plus L equals J, or like Hal Mullen will like be there or something. Oh, and I'm I've said it before, but Howland Reed, the name could possibly be a reference to Howl's Moving Castle, which is a famous Studio Ghibli animated film um, about a moving castle, Howl's Moving Castle. Uh, and in A Song of Ice and Fire, Howland Reed's castle, Greywater Watch, literally moves because it's like built on these like floating swamps and stuff. Um, so, so that seems like an awful lot of a coincidence. I don't know if George Martin is into Japanese animated films, but uh, that seems like it might be a connection. Um, and Bran describes Mira. Uh, she looks like a girl, though he never would have known by her dress. So, so Mira is another sort of like uh, woman who doesn't conform to the traditional gender roles of a of a noble lady like Brienne and Asher and Arya and so on. Uh, and she's near Rob's age, but she's slim as a boy with hair knotted behind her head and only the barest suggestion of breasts. Because George Martin could not possibly describe a girl without describing her breasts or lack thereof. Of. Uh, there's a woven net hung from one slim hip and a long bronze knife on the other. Bronze is evocative, I think, because bronze is like an ancient metal associated with the first men. Like steel is what the Andals introduced, and iron, and, and, and bronze precedes even it. And I think that alludes to the House Reed's connection to the ancient secrets and to the magic and the Dawn Age and the children of the forest. Um, so I, I think the bronze is significant. Uh, and she's got a rusty iron great helm and a frog spear and a leathern shield. So she's a warrior. She's a fighter. Um, uh, and she fit, fits this unusual cultural role as a Cranagman and as a lord's daughter. And, and, she, and, and, you know, her relationship with Jojen is interesting because Jojen notably bears no weapons. Um, so there's a reversal. Instead of the man being the fighter, uh, it's the woman who's the fighter. And Mira is, is, is like a protector of Jojen. Jojen has the more magical, mystical, uh, element to him, while Mira is more, uh, mundane, grounded in the real world, which everyone needs. Every f- floaty little mystic head in the clouds needs, 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 uh, someone who's grounded, holding their balloon string so they don't get untethered, I think. Um... Everyone who's got their head in their clouds needs someone to hold them to earth, and I think Mira is that for Jojen. Um, And so Jojen is is wearing green clothes. His garb was green even to the leather of his boots, and his eyes are the colour of moss. He's totally... he's all green, um, because... Like, okay, we get it. You smoke weed, <laughs> right? Like, all these fucking green dreams Jojen's on. Like, okay, we get it. Like, fucking 420 House Reed, but like, fine. Um, but it's just, it's this, it's this mysticism that's around Jojen with his interrelationship with the with the with the old gods and of course there's the theory that the reason why the Kranigmen and the reeds are, are, are super short and skinny might be because they've interbred with the children of the forest in the past because uh, there's lots of references of like humans interbreeding with non-human creatures in like the lore of a song of ice and fire so i think it's very plausible that there actually is some kind of connection between uh the reeds and the Kranigmen. and so Mira comes in and says, uh, yo, what up? Uh, the years have passed in their hundreds and their thousands since my folk first swore their fealty to the king in the north. My lord father has sent us here to say the words again for all our people. So again, like it references Howland, um, and specifically says that the reason why Mira and Jojen are here are because, uh, Howland sent them. Glidus in the chat says, more like Jojen weed, uh... Yeah, man. Um, and we're told that Howland sent Mira and Jojen here. And later on, we learn that the specific reason why Jojen and Mira are here, because Jojen had these dreams of a winged wolf held down by stone chains. And it's like the job, mystically, of Mira and Bran to release the winged wolf, who is Bran, from those chains to awake his magic power. And those dreams were probably sent to uh, Jojen by Bloodraven up in the north. Uh, so to what extent that's like manipulation or whether it's something more honest and benign is up to you to decide. But I, but I, you got to wonder, like, what role did Howland have in all of this? Like, did Jojen just say, uh, hey, dad, 
Uh, I need to travel to the other side of the continent because I had a I had a weed dream uh, about a doggo who was in some kinky bondage and I need to let him out. Like, is Howland really cool with that? I wonder if Howland might have some kind of green dreams and stuff himself because it is um, hereditary, presumably. It's in the blood, right? So maybe Howland also shared Jojen's mystical experiences. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of similar to Danis the Dreamer, right? Like, the ancient Targaryens left Valyria and uprooted themselves and moved to the arse end of the world on Dragonstone, relocated their entire dynasty on the word of his daughter Danis the Dreamer, because Danis had these visions of Valyria exploding and catastrophe, and on the word of his child's visions, uh, I think it was Aenar Targaryen was his name, moved the Targaryens to Westeros. And that's why they survived. And so I wonder if it's a similar dynamic between Howland Reed and Howland's son, Jojen. And and all, you know, following all these political moves based on his child's mystical visions. I wonder what Howland knows and what Howland's role is in all this. Uh, and so they reaffirm their loyalty to the Starks. They say, To Winterfell we pledge the faith of Greywater. Hearth and heart and harvest we yield up to you, my lord. Our swords and spears and arrows are yours to command. Grant mercy to our weak, help to our helpless, and justice to all, and we shall never fail you. And that is probably the the clearest... Uh, description and statement of, of of what the deal is like. Like, why? What what is the whole foundation of this feudal structure? Structure. Why do all these peasants and these lords submit to be ruled over by by these higher lords? What 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 is underpinning this relationship? And and this is what they're describing here. In return for defense of the weak and justice to all. Um, and sanctuary in the winter town when times are tough, and and in return for that protection, the peasantry and the lower lords offer up the harvest and the taxes and the loyalty and the soldiers for war. That's the deal, and and, and that and that that reciprocal commitment is what the Lannisters break. That's what the Boltons break. That's what the phrase fail. Well, less so the phrase, but the Lannisters and the Boltons. The reason why their their people turn against them and the reason why they collapse and the reason why they're unjust and the reason why they're different to the Starks is because um, they fail to uphold this agreement. And so the Reeds are here to reaffirm this and they swear it by earth and water. I swear it by bronze and iron. We swear it by ice and fire. So that's one of the few times that they actually use the title of this series and that should give us a hint that this is something like cosmically important the reeds are connected to something really significant to the heart of this story it's mysticism um so there's an important page and so bran doesn't know this particular oath so he just says may your winters be short and your summers bountiful which like evoking the seasons you know that gives you the sense that this is something cosmically significant uh this this oath is something ancient and and meaningful um, and Bran, of course, is, you know, presumably the future Weirwood King of Westeros. Like, this, this, this goes to the heart of the contract that Bran must uphold if he does become King of Westeros. Because Bran, you know, Bran so often is being pulled away from politics in the present to become a, a magical, mystic character. But, but there's still, he's still got one foot in, 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 the, mon- in the mundane world of the real world and the politics. And this oath about upholding his duty as a, as a liege lord is an important part of that. And I think Bran will remember this oath of ice and fire if and when he becomes king. Um, <laughs> Hadass in the chat says that this is an international nerd club. Yeah, that pretty much is what Alt X is. Um, smash that like button. Uh, Mira helps her brother up and uh, and Jojen stares at Bran being a bit creepy. Uh, and Mira says, we bring you gifts of fish and frog and fowl. Which is a bit like Frankincense and Mir and and the other one. What's the other one? Frankincense, Mir. You know, it, it, it has like a mystical significance. Like, you know, Bran doesn't really need a frog right now. Like, an amphibious fro- frogo is not like something that Bran needs. But there's a mystical, symbolic significance to this gift giving and this food and, and this oath. So it all speaks to something deeper and bigger than anything physical and anything present. So... Uh, Bran offers the meat and mead of Winterfell, uh, and he thinks about, you know, the Cranigmen are a poor folk, and their fishers and frog hunters who live in houses of thatch and reeds, floating islands hidden in the deeps of the swamp. Um, and Howland Reed was one of Ned Stark's staunchest companions in Robert's Rebellion. 
keeps on mentioning how badass Howland is, so he better do something cool when he turns up. And Jurgen immediately asks about the direwolves, because Jurgen's been dreaming about Bran as a direwolf and that whole old gods, mystical, greenseer, weirwood, warging connection. Um, and Jurgen's really keen to see the direwolves. And Bran mentions that Ned Stark sent letters to Howland Reed over the years, and I've got to wonder what those letters said, you know? Like... What what secrets were Howland and Ned keeping amongst themselves? Were they just, like, chatting? Were they just, like, DMing? Was Ned just sliding into Howland's DMs just to say, like, what up, man? Like, you know, peach emoji. Um, or were they sharing secrets about, you know, John? Like, I mean, I mean, Ned didn't have a lot of people to confide in about this secret that was eating him alive inside, right? Like, Ned was, was hiding from his family the fact that his... That, that John was not really his son, it's the son of his sister, Lyanna. And, you know, surely Ned would want to confide with Howland about how he feels about that. Um, except, of course, he probably couldn't put that in a letter because the maesters might read it, so you got to keep it secret. But, you know, that, that, that bond between Howland and Ned as the only survivors of the Tower of Joy must be really deeply significant. So I wonder what was in those letters, what plans, what contingencies, what revelations, what feelings, all sorts of stuff could be going on. Um, and Bran was like, he like quietly after all the public talk, he says, oh, do these Kranigmen really eat frogs? And Roderick's like, yeah, they eat frogs and fish and lizard lions. They taste like chicken, man. It's all good. A little bit gamey, but pretty tasty. It'll keep your chin greasy. That's true. And so Bran thinks, oh, well, if, if they eat frogs and fish, maybe they don't have sheep and they don't have cattle. So uh, he commands the, the waiters to bring the reeds some mutton chops and, and a slice off the oryx just to see if they like it. So Bran is so thoughtful and so considerate and so kind, um, which is so lovely, and it's so sad that he loses those those human qualities as he becomes more of a magical tree boy. Um, that's the thing George Martin always does. He gives you the good times so that he can cruelly take them away and make it hurt when things get bad in later books. Um, and Mira stares at Bran, and Bran blushes and looks away. Um, which might be a sort of early hint at, at the sort of crush that Bran gets on Mira later in Book 5, uh, which could potentially end in sadness because relationships between uh, crippled tree wizards and uh, chronic women don't always end well, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, next page. After the... <laughs> next page. Uh, after the food had been served and washed down with wine, the food was cleared and the tables shoved back to make room for dancing, which is a cruel thing for Bran to have to sit and watch when he can't dance without his legs. Uh, and the singers sing the song called The Night That Ended, where the Night's Watch ride forth to meet the others in the battle for the dawn. Ooh, that's a spicy little sentence. Um... The Night's Watch rode forth to meet the others in the battle for the dawn. I think one of the takeaways there is that that means the Night's Watch, I mean, if this song is, is accurate, which it probably isn't, but that suggests that the Night's Watch predate the Wall, right? Because the Wall, presumably, was built after the others were defeated in the battle for the dawn. So that means the Night's Watch weren't established to man the Wall. That suggests that the Night's Watch was established to fight the others. So was the Night's Watch just like a, a, a band of warriors led perhaps by the last hero slash Azora High? Um, or was it something more complicated? Um, there's all sorts of speculation you can make there. Uh, Hertog in the live chat says, I think Ned would trust Lewin not to read the letters. Yeah, that's possible. It seems like uh, Ned and Catelyn trusted Lewin a lot. Um... And I would speculate that the that House Reed doesn't have maesters, I would guess. Um, because if House Reed don't have sheep and stone houses and they're eating frogs and stuff, they might not have maesters. That's another institution they might not have. So yeah, if it is that, you know, Ned trusts Lewin and Howland doesn't have anyone snooping on his letters, then maybe they actually could speak freely. That could be interesting. Maybe they could have shared secrets. Uh, so there's dancing, uh, everyone starts throwing shapes on the dance floor, getting rowdy, uh, the Glover men begin a spinning skirl on bladder and wood harp. I tell you, like, uh, uh, any remix of, like, a pop song on a bladder is, it always sounds better. Like, like some kind of, like, dubstep mix, like a bladder remix, 
it's a good time. Uh, so Moore's Umber, that, that's uh, Horsbane with his uh, with his dragon glass eye. He's the first to his feet, and he seizes a passing serving girl by the arm, knocks a flagon of wine out of her hands, and starts dancing with her, and spins her around in the air. And I'm not in. <laughs> she squeals with laughter, so I don't know. I guess she's having a good time. But uh, everyone's having, everyone's getting rowdy on the dance floor. Hodor begins to dance all by himself. Wyman dances with little Beth Cassell, which must have looked hilarious. For all his size, Wyman moved gracefully. They say similar things about Illyrio Mepatis. Illyrio Mepatis is, is grossly obese, but I think there's a moment when Tyrion mentions that, ah, oh, uh, Illyrio moves with surprising grace, uh, because Illyrio used to be a water dancer. Um, so, so George always has, like, these, like, fat men who people underestimate, but who are sort of secretly, like, ultra-competent and graceful and smart, uh, which I do wonder if that's something that he feels about himself. Like, fatness is something that George Martin writes about a fair bit, um, and I think that might reflect his own feelings about himself. And he's always sort of saying that, oh, these, these fat people, they might, they do love their eels, but, you know, they, they know what they're about. And I think that's true of Wyman and Illyrio and perhaps George Martin's, uh, thoughts about himself. Perhaps. Um, and so everyone's having a great time dancing. Lady Hornwood makes her excuses and takes her leave, which is such a tragic, foreboding moment, you know? The ghost at the feast is not joining in the frivolities because maybe in some metaphysical foreshadowing way she sort of knows the horrors to come. She said, she said that Ramsay would attack her lands, and indeed he does, and Hornwood dies. So, um, so there's darkness even amidst the joy. And the dancing makes Bran sad because it's something else he can never do. So all this like human all this human joy is is almost just alienating Bran more. Um and and everyone looks and sort of stares when Bran gets into the basket on Hodor's back and Bran feels the stares. He can never fully be a part of, of this anymore. So there's a real mournful, melancholy disconnection sort of a feeling throughout the feast. Um and and on, on the way out of the hall, like, Bran decides to leave because he can't join in the dancing. Uh, and he he sees Joseph, the master of horse, engaged in a different sort of riding. He's uh, having sex with a woman who Bran does not know, uh, having sex against the wall outside the hall. So, you know, th- they've told me that there's nothing like some eel pie to uh, get the juices flowing. So uh, it's the strongest aphrodisiac in the world uh, is actually the White Harbor crab, is what I've heard. Uh, so Joseph and this girl are, are getting at it, and Hodor stops to watch. He, he's sort of like Forrest Gump, right? Forrest Gump likes to watch. Um, I think that's... Uh, and Bran's like, L- leave them be, don't watch the sex, uh, take me to my bedchamber. And, and, and I think the sex is important because this is another thing that Bran can't do, right? Like, presumably. I don't, I don't know. George has never discussed the uh, functionality of Bran's dick, but... Um, but he can't dance, and now he's seeing sex, and that seems like something that he probably will never have either. Unless he does something through warging, which might be more of an abomination than anything else. Uh, so Hodor carries Bran upstairs to his room, um, and then Hodor leaves, and Bran hears the faint sound of music. And he remembers one day when Ned Stark... Uh, he, he asked his father Ned if the King's Guard are truly the finest knights in the Seven Kingdoms, and Ned said, No longer. Once they were a marvel, a shining lesson to the world, but no longer. And he talks about Arthur Dane with his sword forged from the heart of a fallen star, the sword of the morning, and Howland Reed saved him, and, and then Father got sad. So, so there's this deep sense of like nostalgia and longing, and, and, and that's very much in keeping with what Bran is feeling, about what he's lost, and the family he's lost, and the body that he's lost, and everything that he can't be a part of. Um... So there's a lot of regret and a lot of melancholy amidst all of this joy. And then as he's going to sleep, Bran has another wolf dream. And once again, he's inside Summer's mind in the God's Wood, and, and, and Summer, with his you know, wolf perception, is, is hearing and smelling all of the party and the frivolity, and the, and the night is alive, the howling of the man-pack at their play. And he's feeling restless. And then while these direwolves are in the God's Wood... Um, Oh, I like, uh, yeah, and so, like, this is all described from the direwolf's perspective. Um, and so, from the direwolf's perspective, he, he bounds across the still water at the foot of the old white one and catches the scent of a stranger. And presumably, the old white one is a weirwood. And it's almost a, um, it's almost a, 
humanizing, anthropomorphizing term, the old white one. It sounds like a person. Um, and naturally, I would think the direwolf as a creature of the old gods sort of has some sort of inherent mystical, instinctual connection to the, the weirwood. Um, and so Summer is seeing Mira and Jojen come into the godswood, and Summer notices that there is no taint of fear to the reeds, even when he shows them his white teeth. Um, and Jojen says, oh man, these direwolves, Mira says, oh, these direwolves are so big, and Jojen's like, oh, they will be even larger, and, and Jojen's eyes are large and green and unafraid, and Jojen thinks that, that Shaggy Dog is full of fear and rage, as is Rickon, but he says that Summer, Brand's direwolf, is strong, stronger than he knows. So that's sort of Jojen's role, is to unlock and unchain the strength um, of, of Summer and of Bran magically, to open his third eye. And Mira's like, hey, don't get eaten by a wolf, man. You're not, Tyr. Like, let's not fuck about. Don't play with bitey doggos. But, but Jojen's like, no, the, the wolves won't hurt me. This is not the day I die. So that's one of the most interesting parts of Jojen's character is that he seems to know when he will die and how he will die. Uh, and maybe, indeed, his death will be uh, to be ground up into paste and eaten by Bran in, um, in, in the cave, in Bloodraven's cave. Uh, well, I mean, one of the interesting things about Jojen is that all of his visions and prophecies are, even more than other characters, very metaphorical. Like, Jojen, Jojen just knows that Winterfell will be flooded by water and the people of Winterfell will drown. And what that ends up meaning is that uh, Winterfell gets invaded by Theon Greyjoy and the Ironborn, which is a very sort of <laughs> abstract way to imagine that, right? Um, and, then, and then Jojen sees Ramsay flaying the faces off Bran and Rickon. Um, and he sees, and, and, and Jojen has a dream of Bran and Rickon down in the Winterfell crypts. Which makes you think, oh, Bran and Rickon will die and go to the crypts. What it actually means is that Bran and Rickon will hide in the crypts uh, when Theon takes over Winterfell. So, 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 like, the point is that Jojen's dreams and prophecies come true in a very indirect and abstract way. And the reason why I say that is that, like, it makes you wonder, you know, Jojen can, has supposedly dreamed of the day he will die. I wonder, like, how specific that dream was, right? Like, Jojen knows what will happen, but he doesn't know the specifics. He doesn't know the circumstances and the context. And it seems as though Jojen has, like, made his peace with his death. Presumably he knows that he will die in Bloodraven's cave, I'm assuming. Um, but I wonder if he knows the context. And I wonder if Jojen might be surprised, or indeed horrified, if he finds out the exact... Um, context of his death, if it is that he's ground up into Jojen paste. Um, so Jojen approaches the direwolves, uh, and then when Jojen touches the direwolf Summer, uh, Bran's connection, magical connection to Summer, seems to turn to smoke, and he and he falls. He's spinning and falling, 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 evoking the fall that broke Bran's back and awoke his third eye and sent him into this hole astral journey towards magical singularity in the future and past in the first place. So, uh, so uh, like many of many other of Brand's chapters, uh, he does surface into the real, true, political, mundane world for a while, but then he returns back into the depths of magic and prophecy and destiny, which is where Brand's fate lies. So, it was sort of a happy chapter. It was it, it was sort of a happy chapter, but but all the happiness is mixed in with the joy, isn't it? It's mixed in with the with the sadness. It's mixed in with the with the loss of of the Stark family, all the people who have died, all the people who have gone south never to return. It's it, it's mixed in with the legacy of the Starks and 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 the and the others and the White Walkers. The Starks' connection to the defeat of the others and the Wall is, I think, part of their you know political legitimacy, their myth making. Every ruling party and lord in the world has some kind of origin story and some myth to justify why they are in charge. There's all this sadness over, over everything that's been lost and everything that everything that Bran has lost personally with his disability and stuff. And, and um, there's also all this sadness and all this foreboding about the future. Um, like when Lady Hornwood is, is haunting this feast like a ghost and alluding to the horrors to come, and, and how this feast sort of parallels the Red Wedding, um, which which will bring so much more horror to, to House Stark. Um, 
you know, the Red Wedding has all these like reverberations through the metaphysical material and 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 structure of this book. There are so many visions of the Red Wedding in the House of the Undying, and Theon has a vision of the Red Wedding. Um, it it pervades the whole series before it happens. Is how bad it is. It's like a thin place in the surface of the page itself. The Red Wedding is coming and you can feel it even in this chapter so there's so much horror in the past and so much horror to come and bran sees it all the future and the past and the present all combined he's dr bran hatton which gives him power and and vision and sight but also dehumanizes him and and make things very hard indeed and i wonder how the political and the magical will reconcile if he becomes king at the end of the series if he uses his his magical insight and his connection to the ancient responsibilities and oaths of the past in order to forge a brighter future for Westeros through a marriage of the magical and the political, ice and fire, love and hate can mate, bronze and iron and the reeds and all these wonderful things coming together. So I think that was a lovely chapter. And I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed the food descriptions. And uh, I hope we'll do some more chapters soon. Thanks so much for participating. Um, someone in the chat was saying that um, someone should compile a wiki page about X's life. Um, I do want to assure you that like the, the canon is completely internally consistent. Everything that I've said about my extended family in these live streams, um, it's all true. Every word. Uh, isn't that what Harrison Ford said in the Star War? It's true. All of it. So uh, you better work that out. So yeah, we'll do some more streams. We are going to roll up to the 100th episode pretty soon. Uh, so uh, that'll be very exciting. And I hope you all can make it. So uh, yeah, have a good have a good time. Be safe. Be well. Stay hydrated. And we'll see you all next time. And remember to subscribe to the podcast. It's on Spotify. It's on Apple and everything. Uh, be good if you could give a review on iTunes and if you could stream on Spotify and all that stuff would be cool. All right. Thanks, guys.